Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. This is Lisa, and if you want to catch up with me on Twitter, you can find me at ILTM Podcast. I'm also on Instagram at I Love That Movie Podcast, and we have a Patreon. Uh, the show is always free, but if you want to support us on there, you can, and you can find us at Patreon.com/slash I Love That Movie. Uh, when you sign up for as little as a dollar a month, you get a bonus episode every week. Uh, lately, I've been covering WandaVision with a guest, um, but also just my thoughts on the movies that I've seen that week. And I want to take a moment to thank my top patrons, and they are Chris Belga, Michael Cross, Philip Barker, and Jeff Widman. Thank you guys so much for keeping the lights on. And if you like what you heard today, please subscribe and rate the show. It does help new listeners find us. Uh, and today I have a returning guest. I have John Rogers. Say hi, John. Hi, John. Hey, John. <laughs> how, how have you been? How are you doing? Uh, well, I'm upright and above ground, and we don't need to get into all that, but uh, yes, I'm very thankful that I am able to be here tonight. Yeah, I'm glad that you're doing better, um, and you know, it's also been a while since I've had you on. You've been on several episodes. Uh, we talked, uh, let's see, To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, and also uh dazed and confused that's right and yeah so you're back here uh you, you typically pick classic films uh <laughs> and the guest always picks the movie so what movie did you choose to talk about today i picked a little known movie <laughs> i picked the uh, <laughs> casablanca from 1942 you know, I had to go back into my archives and make sure we hadn't already covered this, and I could not believe that we haven't. Maybe people feel intimidated. I don't know, but it looks like we hadn't picked it yet. So I was like, yay! <laughs> um, this is one of my favorite films as well. Uh, so I was very excited that you chose this one, rewatched it, even though it's not like I have to rewatch it. Like I know what happens, I've seen it many times, but it's always fun to go back and revisit it. Uh, let's before we dive too much into it let me go ahead and give you the synopsis really fast i don't know why i have to do that you guys should have seen casablanca already <laughs> but let me do that for you uh rick blaine who owns a nightclub in casablanca discovers that his old flame ilsa is in town with her husband victor laszlo laszlo is a famed rebel and with germans on his tail ilsa knows rick can help them get out of the country um, so, you know, this is one of those movies that, I mean, it's like Citizen Kane, right? I mean, I think it's like right up there with that, like considered the perfect film. Yesterday, and, I rewatched it with the Roger Ebert 
audio track, commentary track. Oh, on. cool. And I like he, that. He said that uh, if he had to pick the best film of all time, he would have to pick Citizen Kane. But if he had to pick the classic movie that he enjoyed the most of all time, it would be Casablanca. I think I'm with him there. I think like entertainment wise, it's the best one, but then maybe, you know, best technical film and overall everything combined Citizen Kane. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's pretty much the point he made was, yeah. that, you know, there was a lot of neat technical innovations in Kane, but as far as sheer entertainment value, uh, you have to go with Casablanca. Sure. Um, so, you know, this is one of those movies too that I feel like uh, sometimes film buffs can whip out and, and intimidate people with almost, right? Like I feel like people that are sort of tiptoeing into film, they're like overwhelmed with the huge list of movies that they're told they have to watch. Right. And this is on that list, but you know what? It's just the truth. It's just that good. It is truly timeless and amazing. Uh, what was When was the first time that you saw this movie? I don't know for sure when the first time I saw it. It seems like it's been there forever. Now, I uh, television, my mother was a, a lover of movies, and so I probably saw it at home uh, on uh, one of the, uh, back when we only had three TV channels, and one of them, it seemed like one of them would run a movie every night. So I probably saw it uh, on that. But just a few years ago, Turner does those fathom events. And so uh, Lynn and I, my wife and I got to see it on the big screen for the first time. And it was just beautiful. It was just beautiful. A point that uh, Ebert made, I don't want to keep going back to him, but back when the Ebert, uh, Siskel and Ebert show were on, was on, uh, it seems like I always, when they, differed in opinion about a movie it seems like i always agreed more with roger ebert so he's he's mm -hmm. a, a critic that i really respect and he said that even for younger people who don't like old classic movies or black and white movies or things like that they all seem to like this movie uh, because it just transcends generations it transcends genres i mean it's it's part action flick is it's, it's part romance is part almost Hitchcockian with the MacGuffin that's involved uh, and the surprise ending, which is no longer a surprise, but you cannot watch that ending and not be moved by it. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so it's, it, it holds up and uh, all the little, little, little moments in it. And I'm sure we'll get into some of those as we uh, discuss this tonight, but some people call it the perfect movie. It does have its problems, as any film will, but it it, it transcends those, uh, and just is a wonderful experience. Just turn it on, watch it, enjoy it, and and love it like I do, or I wouldn't be sitting here talking about it. Yeah, I um, you know, if you happen to have HBO Max, it's on there under the Turner Classic Film uh, heading, so you could go watch it there if you've never seen it before. But it's definitely a film that I agree it it does transcend generations. I think it's it's always stayed relevant, uh, and it's funny because I mean, at the time when it came out, nineteen forty two, I mean, 
you know, it was extra relevant then. And I think when I was a little bit younger, I don't think I realized that it came out at the time that it's like based in also like mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't know that. Um, I kind of always viewed it. It's so brazen about, you know, it's opinions on what's going on politically that I kind of just assumed that it came out later, like in retrospect almost, but it's not. Um, and I don't know when I first saw this either. Uh, to be honest, it, it probably was during like a film class or something like that. Sure. Um, but you hear all the quotes all the time. We've seen so many clips over and over again through the years. There's been so many parodies that it's literally hard to pick like one memory moment of when I saw it. But um, I absolutely love it. And I, th- I think I've seen it in the theaters too. Uh, but I'm not positive. Um, but anyway, I, I never, it's one of those films that like, if I watched it again right now, I would enjoy it because it's just something that I could throw on literally any time. Um, so here's a couple of quick facts. Um, the first one that I have is that although this is an overtly anti-Nazi film, it wasn't the first one that Warner Brothers had made. It had come out several years ago with Confessions of a Nazi Spy in 1939, Although I wouldn't say that several years ago. It was a couple years ago. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Warner's was the first Hollywood studio to be so open about its opposition to the Nazi regime and the first to prohibit its films from being distributed in Nazi-occupied territories. Uh, indeed, Harry M. Warner was making speeches denouncing Nazi activities in Germany uh, as early as 1936. And uh, what's also interesting is that so many and we'll get into this in a little bit but so many of the actors even the extras uh that participated in the filming of this were refugees european refugees uh and that's what really brings uh the poignancy of, of some of the scenes to it these were people some of whom lived what they're talking about you said it uh being uh set and made during uh uh, 1942 during a uh, World War II. Uh, Rick has a line. Uh, it's December 1941. Here, what is it in America? And uh, mm-hmm. and I read somewhere. I never really noticed it, but there's a calendar that shows that it's December 2nd. So it's just a few days before Pearl Harbor. Wow. This may be a fact that you're about to get to when somebody at Warner's who was in uh, a job it was to read plays and look at plays and things to see if there's anything that could be uh, uh, turned into a a Warner Brothers film uh, came across this script the day before the day after Pearl Harbor. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, The second fact that I have is that Dooley Wilson, who plays Sam, was actually a professional drummer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he faked playing the piano. As the music was recorded at the same time as the film, the piano playing is actually a recording of a performance by John Vincent Plummer, who was playing behind a curtain, but who was positioned so that Dooley could watch and copy his hand movements. Yeah, and, and sometimes he was more <laughs> successful than others. I, <laughs> when you watch it, don't watch Dooley Wilson's hands. Uh, <laughs> just, just, just enjoy it. He did do his own singing. There was some talk about dubbing in another singer for him, but uh, they kept it, and thank God they did because 
how can you not listen to that song sung by him uh by Dooley wilson and uh not get those feelings uh, i mean it's a smaller part in the film but it has a really big impact you know he really connects us to the relationship between rick and ilsa and i don't know he's just very compelling in that role so yeah i think you know putting acting ability over just him being able to play the piano. I think they made the right choice too. And his voice is beautiful. So it, I think that's also kind of unique because sometimes in older movies, you know, they did dub people a lot and I'm glad that they didn't dub him because I think it, it came across very authentic and it sounds good. So um, the last that, thing, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say another thing too. His character, he's not seen as subservient at all. He is an equal. We talked when, back when we talked about Mockingbird. We talked about some of the uh, social uh, conventions between black and white people back in those days. We see Rick at one point put his hand on uh, Sam's shoulder. And, right. Yeah, and uh, when uh, he's negotiating with the other nightclub owner about perhaps selling the nightclub don't want to give away a spoiler here or anything or when the other nightclub owner played by wonderfully played by Sydney Greenstreet uh offers Sam a uh, a job at his club uh Rick lets Sam make his own decision and you know he's you know they're they're friends and one gets the idea they're also uh business partners in this venture as well so uh he's not the uh, stereotypical black character that populated movies during that time. Yeah. And I think a lot of that has to do, I mean, you know, if you watch a lot of movies from this era, if there are black characters, like you said, you know, especially if it takes place in America, um, there is that like racial um, aspect to it where they are, like you said, not considered equal and it's very obvious and, you know, uh, for the time, it's like, I don't want to say it was understandable because I'm never going to say like that was okay, but that's how things kind of were. Um, and so, you know, you're right. He, I think a lot of that has to do too with the fact that like Casablanca is sort of like a, it's a magical place in this movie almost where it's been, it's successfully sort of stayed out of what's happening in the rest of the world. That, and that kind of means everything. And I feel like having Sam be black and being treated well uh, illustrates the fact that like, they don't have to play by everybody else's rules. And that part of the attraction to being there is that he does get to have, you know, true agency the way that Rick does. Um, one last thing that I was going to add too is that Rick never says play it against Sam. <laughs> like people always quote, he says, you played it for her. You could play it for me. If she can stand it, I can stand it, play it. Or yeah, if she can stand it, I can stand it. I can play it. The incorrect right. line has become the basis for spoofs and very, you know, and a lot of stuff. In including... fact, that's actually the title of a play that Woody yes. Allen wrote. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> shall, we yeah. spring it, shall we spring it that, what I told you yesterday on them now. Oh yeah, sure. Go ahead. <laughs> Back in the eighties around 88 or 89, I was involved with a, a community theater where I used to live uh, in the mid cities between Dallas and Fort Worth. And one of the plays we did was uh, Woody Allen's play it again, Sam. 
and I played Bogart. Uh, the play is a, a Woody Allen type character gets help and advice in his love life from a, the spirit of Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> and, uh, you know, had me in the trench coat and the hat and they would like me from the back because I don't look much like Bogey and I was much thinner than I am now. And, uh, but I got this wonderful compliment from a lady after the show one night, she said, you even walked like Bogart. And I, oh, it was, not, it was not something I was uh, uh, conscious of trying to do is basically stand there with one hand in the trench coat pocket and the other hand holding the cigarette. And Well, uh, he's so iconic. I feel like he gets into all of our minds eventually, right? Like you just watch so many movies with him and you just, you probably just subconsciously yeah. started mimicking him. It was, it was a fun role. And, uh, <laughs> And a funny thing about it, and then we'll leave that alone. But uh, when I got the role, I bought a, a couple of, this is back in the cassette days. I bought a cassette of uh, the radio broadcast of Casablanca and of the Maltese Falcon from radio oh, shows nice. in the late 40s, early 50s that had Bogey. And the more I listened uh, to Bogey, trying to get the voice down the further away i seemed to get to get from it so i just put it aside did, did my own bogey and people told me it was okay so <laughs> that's awesome i would have liked to have seen that that's that's a pretty fun experience i used to have it on vhs but then my stepdaughter needed to record a episode of buffy the vampire slayer and there was no label on this cassette so oh uh... no <laughs> <laughs> that's really funny <laughs> <laughs> oh kids um so going back to this movie i wanted to talk a little bit about the director uh michael curtis you you mentioned earlier that this film kind of goes across different genres and i think when you look at like some of his other work you can kind of see that right like you know adventures of robin oh, hood for sure um stands out to me uh you know you've got the the comancheros captain blood like you know just adventure flicks right he yeah he was the workhorse of Warner Brothers. He probably did at least five films a year for them, probably more. Uh, and he is closely associated with Errol Flynn. He directed uh, several of his, like you mentioned, Captain Blood, Adventures of Robin Hood, uh, Dodge City. Uh, he did westerns, uh, and so yeah, he was definitely an employee of the company and. Uh, did whatever project they threw in his lap. And uh, he was a very good technical director. Mm. Uh, there's uh, a lot of talk that the uh, the producer was actually the more creative force behind this particular film that oh, okay. Curtiz basically got it on film, but it was dark on it. I had his name on the tip of my tongue. Oh. He was sort of the creative force behind uh he answered straight to uh, Jack Warner. Uh, I cannot find his name here. Uh, in fact, so much so that uh, when uh, Casablanca won Best Picture. Oh, yes, I did read about this. Oh, are you talking about Hal B. Wallace? Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, is usually the producer of the film that goes up and accepts the statue and Jack That's Warner right. beat him to the stage Ooh. and uh, which led to hard feelings between Wallace and Warner. 
And, well, yeah. And Wallace left uh, Warner Brothers. He was around there for a few more years after that, but he did uh, did eventually break with the Warner Brothers. Yes, Hal Wallace. Uh, thank you. No problem. I think the biggest thing, the other m- big movie that I really remember, well, there's a couple, I guess, like Huckleberry Finn, uh, but also uh, White Christmas. <laughs> you know, those oh, are the, yes. the biggest standouts to me for for uh, Curtiz. Right. And as many times as Bing sang that song, the very first time he sings it in White Christmas when it's at the uh, uh, the at the war, uh, when he's singing to the troops, that's, that's the prettiest time. But uh, we'll yeah. have to save that one for when we talk about White Christmas. We should. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, we could go through, well, do you want to go through some of the actors or talk about you sure. know, some of your favorite performances? Yeah, go ahead. Well, you've already mentioned Bogey and, and, uh, we've uh, mentioned him a lot on this podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course, Ingrid Bergman, absolutely luminous and not yes. my adjective. Everybody, it seems like everything I read about it, uh, says that she's just absolutely luminous as, a uh, Rick's former lover, Ilsa Lund. Uh, Paul Heinrich as Victor Laszlo, uh, who was also, uh, I believe, a refugee. Wow. Uh, Claude Rains, who was so great as the uh, Prince John and and Adventures of Robin Hood and was the original Invisible Man, uh, played Captain Louis Renault, which is probably the funnest character in the thing. He yeah, is, he's a little mustache twirly, but fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, Conrad Bight, uh played Major Strasser, the head Nazi, and he's a, he really was a, a refugee. His wife was Jewish. I believe oh. he was actually from Austria, and they came to America wow. to get her out of there. Uh, but Amazing. he was already a big star in Germany and Austria. You know, uh, this will go back to our cosplay interest. <laughs> he did back in the silent days. He did a movie called The Man Who Laughed. Who he played a oh, man wow. whose face was paralyzed into this permanent grin, and supposedly that's where Bob Kane and Bill Finger got the idea for how the Joker looks. Well, he literally like if you just like look at photos of him. Not even in that movie, he does look like the Joker. That's so cool. I I did not know that notice that connection at all till you said that. Yeah. I guess because I'm just thinking of him as a Nazi. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, and, he, okay. and he played that a lot, but he didn't mind doing it because uh, uh, he wanted to ridicule them. He wanted to uh, uh, show them in the worst light possible. So he he you know, like all actors didn't want to be typecast, but at the same time, he had such anti-Nazi feelings that he did not mind ridiculing them. There's another bogey movie that he did not too long after this one, I believe called all through the night, which is a little bit more comedy than this one Mm. where he plays essentially the same character. Uh, And uh, bogey plays a New York gangster, but not really, but probably anyway, as uh, <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, Byte played those characters a lot, but he was a big star in Germany. Hmm. Uh, Sydney Greenstreet and Peter Laurie will lump them two together because they were lumped together in several movies. Sydney Greenstreet, of course, the the big uh, excuse me for saying this word, but that's what he was called, the Batman and Maltese Falcon, and Peter Laurie uh, as the little kind of smarmy guy who 
Yes. <laughs> got the whole plot rolling because he stole the MacGuffin, which is these letters of transit mm -hmm. uh, from these German couriers and, and hides them in uh, Rick's uh, cafe. And that's what everybody's after. Supposedly these letters uh, grant to bear free, free pass uh, out of uh, Northern Africa and onto Lisbon, Portugal, where they can go anywhere. Uh, it's been pointed out that there was actually no such real documents and the Germans didn't play by the rules anyway, that even if right. there were these things that all they say, well, never mind. But um, uh, let's see here. But the Peter Lorre, yeah, he he was so much fun. And he was a big star in Europe too. Uh, uh, starred in uh, some Alfred Hitchcock movies over there before Alfred Hitchcock came over to America. Oh, interesting. He was in the original Dial M for Murder, I believe. Oh. And, and, uh, and those things. S.Z. Sakal uh, plays the head waiter, Carl, and he's a lot of fun, too. And yeah. he's, he's another one that came over. For, in fact, I read somewhere that only Bogey and uh, Dooley Wilson and Joy Page are the of the main uh, characters are the only American born actors in this thing. Makes sense. I mean, given its location and you know, where it's set and mm -hmm. yeah. But to so many of these people had come to America and, and a lot of them wound up in uh in California and and they would uh get central uh, casting would use them for uh, uh extras and movies like like adventures of robin hood he had so so many neat old world faces and that and a lot of those same faces appear here as well uh but yeah uh he uh sz sakal was known as cuddles uh he was in yankee doodle dandy uh uh you, he played uh theater theater producers a lot mm. yeah he's like an older he looks like a producer. <laughs> yeah. Joy Page, small role. She didn't have a very long acting career. Uh, she was the Romanian, that were Bulgarian, Bulgarian girl that uh, oh right was trying to uh, get a visa out of there with her new husband. She's very young. In real life, she was Jack Warner's stepdaughter. But be that as it may, she turns into a fine performance. And, and that little scene... Uh, where her husband manages to get the money he needs to buy the visas. And I, again, I'm not going to spoil anything here. Uh, but the, the scene that she has with Bogey right before that and that scene uh, is one of my favorite parts of the movie uh, when she explains why they're there and why, why they have to leave uh, Europe and try to make a new life in America. It's sort of what all these people are trying to do. Yes, yeah. It's sort of like a halfway point and uh, neutral ground at this point. Um, but, you know, you get the feeling it's not going to stay that way for long, but right. that's where it is for now, yeah. And one, one more character actor I want to mention here because he's a person you've seen him in a gazillion movies and you don't know his name. I, I wouldn't remember his name if I weren't looking at it right now. John Quaylen. He played uh, the resistance contact that Victor Laszlo uh, meets in the mm. bar. That has has the the secret ring. Yeah. And uh, but he was in a, he was a John Ford guy. Uh, 
he was in, I watched him last week in the man who shot Liberty balance and, uh, uh, was in several John Ford movies playing a, uh, usually a Polish or Swedish type character. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he was in there as well. So uh, lots, of, lots of familiar faces. Uh, Mm, that's all the main people. Uh, Madeline LeBeau is Yvonne, the French girl who uh, apparently is Rick's most recent love interest, but he wasn't that interested in her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she has a, the look on her face during the uh, the dueling uh, music scene when uh, uh, Paul Heinrich's character leads the band in La Marseille. Uh, the French national anthem uh, is just that's one of those high points and that scene too uh, when they filmed that scene and they had all these extras who came from Europe and uh, the story goes that when they filmed the scene that there were real tears running down these people's faces as they shouted down the Germans the Germans are singing a German drinking song and uh, Paul Heinrich's character, who is a leader of the French resistance, uh, leads uh, Rick's house band in the French national anthem, and uh, they essentially overwhelm the Germans. And uh, mm-hmm. that a lot of the people there were weren't acting; they were visibly moved by it all. And she right. was one of them. She gets a nice close-up in that scene that really yes. brings the point home. Yeah. Okay, anyway, that's most of the main characters, actors here. Uh, no problem, yeah. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about some of your favorite scenes in the movie? And I know you said you didn't want to spoil it. That's that's your choice. If you don't want to do any spoilers, <laughs> we can. But I always tell people before they list, you know, proceed further, uh, there will be spoilers. So, you know, yeah, you can feel free to spoil and, things And this movie is so familiar that it, I probably won't hurt anything. Uh, <laughs> True. Okay, I already said that the little Bulgarian girl, when she goes to Rick and and uh, tells him her story, and uh, what's going on there is uh, Captain Renault, the Claude Rains character, is uh, French, but he is loyal to the Vichy government, which was the puppet government. Uh, there mm-hmm. was there was the uh, occupied France, and there was free France, but they really weren't free. Vichy. Uh, paid lip service to the Nazis. And so right. it's essentially a puppet. And Claude Rains, uh, he says, I blow like the wind. Right now the wind blows from Vichy. So he's kissing up to the Nazis and Paul Heinrich, et cetera. And, uh, but he's got this vice. He will sometimes arrange these uh, visas for uh, attractive ladies who, uh, uh, and, and they never come out and say it because, again, you had the uh, Hayes office or whatever it was called back then. You couldn't say it. But the, the impression was if this young lady uh, slept with uh, Captain Renault, that he would grant them a visa. Oh, I didn't notice that. But, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, yeah. she's very, very pretty. And, and there is something. I mean, there's like a weird energy to him giving her that agreement. So that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And uh and so she says that to Rick, you know, she and her husband, they're very young. Uh, in fact, Rick tells her that she doesn't even belong in the club. She's underage. That's uh, right. Uh, 
but the husband's trying to win money at the roulette wheel, roulette wheel, and he's not having any luck. And so she goes to Rick, says that asked Rick if Captain Renault is the man who keeps his promises, and she says to Rick, which kind of echoes the bigger plot uh, that if she does this terrible thing, but she never tells her husband. And he never knew, and it would help them get achieve their goals. Would that be okay? And we have a sort of a mirror scene later on when Ingrid Bergman's character goes to Rick trying to get the letters of transit from him. Uh, and uh, they have some special time together. Uh, so there's sort of a reflection of the, the, the bigger or more central plot there in minuscule with this young Bulgarian couple. I love that scene. I love it. And uh, <laughs> I'm about to make a leap from Casablanca to Star Wars. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Go for it. Well, because I, I, I was actually wondering if you were going to mention Star Wars, because I, I actually think of Star Wars, too, when I watch this movie. Well, the, <laughs> the cantina itself, kind yeah. uh, uh, of Cafe American, kind of is like the cantina in Star yes. Wars. But go to uh, 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 the first of the, of the three latest, uh, the one where we just see Luke Skywalker for just a second there at the end. Which one's that? Uh, of the three newer ones, of the three newer ones, yeah, the first uh, of the three newer ones. I guess, I guess it that would be uh, the Force Awakens, like the the first movie. Yeah, I guess I, I, I get them, yeah. I get them confused. No, that's okay. Well, okay, now think about when uh, when uh, Ilsa and uh, Victor Laszlo have come to Rick's. <laughs> that was the title of the original play. Everybody comes to Rick's. Oh, really? Yeah, because they knew that Peter Laurie's character. Was, uh, they had arranged to meet him there. Peter Laurie has these letters of transit, mm-hmm. but they don't know that Peter uh, that, that that Ugarte has been arrested. That's right. And he had hidden or left the letters with Rick to hide for him. Mm-hmm. So uh, Victor Laszlo and Ilsa Lund show up, hoping to meet with uh, Ugarte, and uh, uh Ilsa sees Sam and recognizes him from the time that they were all in Paris. Uh, I say they were all, uh, Bogart, Ingrid Bergman, and Dooley Wilson were all in Paris. And uh, there's this wonderful flashback scene that shows their relationship. We'll get to some of the moral issues here in just a minute. Uh, But uh, she asks uh, Sam to play the song and the song of course is as time goes by which is you cannot separate it from this movie i mean it comes up several times yeah in in fact uh, max steiner the composer worked the main melody of it into the score and he didn't even want to use that song (laughs) mainly because he didn't write it it was one that uh, warner brothers also had a huge uh, music publishing concern and as time goes by was a, a, a song that they owned and uh, it was in the original draft of the play was the song that the uh, original writers used, uh, Everybody Comes to Rick's, which was never produced, by the way. And I've tried to find a copy of that original script to see if it was something that maybe one of my theater groups could fool around with, but I've, I've never been able to find a copy of the script. 
But anyway, uh, so she asks uh, Sam to play that song, and he starts it, and Bogey comes charging into the room, and uh, we don't know why yet, but he walks straight to Sam and says, Sam, I told you never to play that, and then Dooley kind of nods his head towards Ilsa, and uh, and, uh, and okay, this is where the Star Wars connection comes in. The look... <laughs> on Bogey's face when he sees Ilsa. You see love, you see revulsion, you see hate, you see sadness, you see anger, all in one wordless five, ten seconds tops. Now think about the end of The Force Awakens when oh, yeah. when Ray finds Luke Skywalker and he turns around and she holds the lightsaber out to him the looks on his face. Yeah. No, I can see what you're, I can see that parallel for sure. Yeah. It's, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there's my, uh, uh, star Wars comparison. Uh, uh, and th- you know, again, I've done a little bit of acting. That's hard to do. I mean, you can say lines and, and give it a spin accent, a certain syllable or something, but that nonverbal stuff, I mean, he says so much, both actors do, uh, uh, Mark Hamill and Humphrey Bogart in this one, say so much with just a five-second change of expressions on yes. their faces. And uh, so uh, I-, I love that scene. Um, oh, another wonderful scene. Uh, the scenes between Bogey and Claude Rains as Captain Renault. Yeah, they seem really to good. be having fun. Mm-hmm. Two actors who uh, respect each other as actors don't seem to be taken. And again, that's the thing about this movie. There's some parts that are deadly serious, and but there's, yeah. there's some light comedy too. Like when uh, uh, Captain Reynolds asks Rick why he can't go back to America, uh, and Rick's a smart aleck he says well i came here for the waters i came here for my health and and claude rains is is like but we're in the middle of a desert bogey just kind of <laughs> makes that bogey face oh well i was misinformed and, yeah he was so always so good at that i mean he's always kind of himself but it's always a very very good performance and yeah and a similar thing when uh uh conrad Veidt as major strasser the german nazi majors questioning rick uh and rick he hands rick the dossier that he has on him and rick looks at him, oh are my eyes really brown <laughs> yeah uh, and, and little things like the pickpocket he pops in two or three times i love yes i love the pickpocket scenes you're right though the the, the movie kind of shifts tone a lot but so well because it's sometimes it's almost like a a noir film you know between mm-hmm. I mean, Bogart's in a lot of noir, right? Sure. <laughs> but, um, and then Ingrid Bergman, you know, she, as Ilsa is sort of like a femme fatale. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of that energy between them. Their mm-hmm. relationship is complex. But then at the same time, like you said, there's a lot of moments that are very light. Then there's action, drama. I mean, just so many different things in one movie. And, and it, it makes the whole thing just such a fun movie going experience for sure. Yeah, and when we t- I, t- I mentioned that she was luminous. Roger Ebert talked about that a lot on his commentary. Uh, 
most of the time you see her, she's on the right side of the screen being photographed from her left. She thought mm. that was her best side. Uh, but uh, Ebert would point out the way that she was lit. Uh, uh, she was, she kind of had a round face and, and they lit her so that uh, her face was more angular. And, oh, I also but, noticed like in most old movies, like when the camera lens is on, you know, Humphrey Bogart, uh, you can see every detail in his face. But then when it's a lot of times when it's on female actresses, they, they use that sort of like fuzzy uh, thing that they put over the lens so that like everyone gauze, looks a little bit. Yes. Yeah, like gauze. Yeah. And, you know, which is like, kind of like today, a, a filter, a literal yeah. filter. <laughs> yes, it, it really was. Yes. And uh, yes. And they did that to her. And they also had these tiny key lights that were aimed directly at her eyes. So again, mm-hmm. it helps uh, make her look luminous. But but the but it was the way she used her eyes. Uh, when she's talking to Bogey or uh, in the one, <laughs> she has all these intimate scenes with Bogey and she's married to Pa Heinrich's character. She only has one kind of intimate scene, intimate scene with him. But she doesn't just look them at the eye, in the eyes and say her lines. She's, sweeps their whole face with her eyes mm-hmm. and uh, and she knows uh how to look down and uh, yeah uh, uh just the angle of her head how much of that was her how much of that was michael curtis uh i don't know but uh it, it certainly worked and uh but uh and they certainly photographed her to the greatest advantage for sure. Yeah, that's interesting to hear all that backstory on how they lit her and everything. And and yeah, just the natural way they kind of make women appear, appear more like soft or angelic too. Yeah. Um, and her character, yeah. her character comes into a lot of criticism because it's like, okay, who is she really in love with? Is she in love with Paul Heinrich or is she in love with Humphrey Bogart? Well, in my opinion, the simple answer is both. Yeah, and- I, I think it, it, it's complicated in a... You know, when you're standing away from the situation, it's easy to to judge her. But when you consider the historical context of what's happening, you know, I I don't think so. It's like it's not the same as as just, you know, her her husband was in a concentration camp. Yeah. Well, none of us know what we would do in that situation. Well, not only that, but she had, you know, and that's the thing which makes it okay in my mind. When she was having her romance with Rick in Paris, which we get in a flashback, uh, and she explained later on in the film when she's confronting Rick about giving her the uh, the letters of transit, she, at that point, she uh, during that time in her life, she believed that Victor Laszlo was dead. She had gotten mm-hmm. word that he had been killed. That's true, yeah. So, and, and And also, I think that... Uh, I think she loves her husband, but I don't know if you feel this way. It's it's a different kind of relationship with him than with Bogart because, or Bogart's character, because Bogart's character sort of puts her in the forefront of his life. I mean, he's so truly in love and entranced by her. She she means the world to him, and she will never really mean that to Laszlo. Right. Um, he loves her. He truly loves her, but the cause is his first true love, which is admirable. So she can't be upset about that. And she's not, but there's a different type of love that she shares with Rick. 
And, you know, it's painful that two of those things are happening at the same time for her as well. And, and that's something I don't think Rick understands till towards the end. And it's why I think both men like are able to like understand the situation and, you know, quote unquote, forgive her. And I love Paul Heinrich or Victor Laszlo's response. He says, I happen to know to Rick, I happen to know you're in love with a woman that we should happen to be in love with the same woman. Yes. Yeah. And he says, and since no one is to blame, I, he, he doesn't hold any hard feelings or says he doesn't. And then, but to put the whole thing in perspective, Rick does that near the end when he says the little pro the problems of three little people don't mean a hill of beans in this crazy world. That right. I mean, there are romances very minimal compared to what's happening. Indeed. You know? And, uh, and she's, as he says, you're part of his work, part of what keeps him going. And uh... But yeah, I, I agree. I, I think the moral complexity of her complicated feelings, his feelings, her husband's feelings against the backdrop of World War II, like all that stuff is just, it's really juicy and interesting. And, um, and, and you know, Rick's character is like an expatriate. Mm -hmm. um, and he's really running away from the problems in America. He doesn't want to deal with it. And he's running away from the problems with the war as well. Like he just kind of, you know, Casablanca is like his little safe haven. He doesn't want to deal with everything else, but ultimately because of Ilsa, um, he will start to make decisions that are less selfish and kind of mirror more the way Laszlo is really. Um, and I think that the first big scene where he does that is with that Bulgarian girl that, I mean, he just, he sticks his neck out for her. Right. Uh, he, I stick he my neck he, out for no one. Yeah, he says that. <laughs> and then he immediately does it. Uh, but yeah, he lets her husband win. He makes sure that he wins. And, uh, you know, the, the Nazis see that. And it really, it really puts him in a precarious situation. And yet he inches closer and closer and closer as the movie goes on towards just straight up being a hero. Oh yeah. Um, and uh, well, in the, the dueling song scene, the band doesn't start, even though Victor Laszlo goes over and says, play La Marseille. They don't pick up their instruments. till they look over at Rick and he gives them the nod. That, okay, go ahead. So yeah, he, he does support, uh, what the, the resistance is doing even if only uh, in spirit at that point. It's yeah, funny. I mean, there's a reason why he ran away from certain things. He, he, he didn't agree with what was happening. And, right. you know, this, uh, he's kind of a rebel already, but now he's, you know, more involved because he can't help, but he can't be neutral forever. Yeah. And, yeah. Interesting point about that little nod that Bogart gives him us. Uh, Supposedly that's an insert that he just got called in, told to suit up, put on the white jacket and go in and shoot this one little shot. He said, he said, look over in this direction, uh, Curtis, look over in this direction and give a little nod. And that was it. He did had no idea what it was for or anything. And in, in editing, it was put in to uh, signal the band that it's okay to play this song. <laughs> oh, wow. I love that. What's another iconic scene that you really connect with in the film? Uh, well, of course, the end at the airport. Uh, yes. That's where you get the wonderful speech. Uh, the We said a lot of things last night, but it occurs to me, you said I had to do the thinking. It occurs to me that 
the problems of three little people don't mean a hill of beans. And, you know, he essentially falls on his sword. And he knows that as soon as they get away that uh, Captain Renault and probably Mesa Strasser are going to arrest him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he does what he has to do so that they can get away. And, uh, and again, that speech is wonderful. And then he admits to uh, Lazo that he and Ilsa had spent some time together the night before that she was trying to get those letters from him and uh, uh, pretended to be still in love with him. He says, and I let her pretend. And Lazo just simply says, I understand. And, uh, you know, fairly sophisticated emotions. Uh, you know, these two guys could have been filled with rage and fought over this woman, but they, they don't. They know that she's a good person. Yeah. I mean, they just know who she is. And, you know, Rick says she's one of a kind. Yes. <laughs> and uh, they really respect her and believe her, you know. And, uh, yeah, I think that's not only is it rare for two guys to feel that way but i think it's rare in movies to see that because <laughs> usually a lot of the entertainment is kind of driven by the the conflict and uh it's not the case in this movie which is really interesting but bogey of course or rick is able to hold uh captain renault and major strasser at bay until the plane gets safely away which wasn't even a real plane uh oh really <laughs> oh oh you don't know this no, tell okay, me, tell me. That is okay. The only scene, but there was some stock footage of, of Paris that was used in the flashback. But the oh, only yeah, that scene that wasn't filmed <laughs> on a soundstage was the first airport scene where Major Strasser arrives. That was filmed at Van Nuys mm-hmm. Airport in, in uh, California. Um, the airport at the end was a soundstage set and they didn't have a lot of room. The plane is a uh, uh, three-quarter size cardboard cutout, and the workmen you see preparing the plane, they're little people to create oh. this depth, and, and there's a lot of fog blowing through this scene as well. Uh, but the plane wasn't real. Uh, and here they are in the middle of the desert, and the tarmac is all wet as though it just rained, which I guess it could True. have. Yeah, I guess it could rain, but yeah, you just not something you think of when you think of a desert. Right. And, uh, uh, but, uh, so you got the opening of the hangar where, uh, most of this action takes place, but this plane in the distance, uh, when you see, uh, uh, Paul Heinrich turn and walk towards the plane to take the luggage when Rick gives his big speech to Ilsa, you only see him take a few steps before it cuts away from him. Because if he'd gotten any closer to the plane from our point of view at that point, he would have looked like a giant. <laughs> <laughs> that is so interesting. I didn't know that. This is a complete aside, but I'm realizing looking at a still from the movie in that scene that a suit that I made earlier last year uh, looks a lot like her suit at the end of the movie. Well, there you go. <laughs> there's, I didn't there's your next cosplay. <laughs> I know I did not mean to do that. I must have done it subconsciously. Well, the pattern did say it was a 1940s suit pattern, so I should have known. But, is, is that a picture um, here on the IMDb page? Or? Uh, so if you go to IMDb and you look at like all the... All the stills? Like yeah. you click on the pictures. Yeah, it's oh one of the gosh, stills. She's got like six a page. three... Yeah, she's got like a three-breasted 
jacket or three button jacket uh and then like a, a skirt and it just it looks kind of like what i made oh well <laughs> I, even, I noticed because of the pockets are like very large um well when we can we can start going to conventions we can start going to conventions again i'll break out the trench coat and the fedora and you break that out and we'll go there you go i think i already need to remake it because unfortunately i was trying to be like really cool and like i made it out of uh wool oh my um, goodness and it, it's very, the wool blend that I got is like really, really thick. So it, it looks more like an outer coat, like a, you know, like a nice wool winter jacket. Yeah. So I would need to probably remake it out of something thinner. But yeah. anyway, course, it was my first time to make something like that. So it it has its problems, but overall if, I was If we wore it. those to a con, people would think we were Thomas and Martha Wayne anyways. So. There you go. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've actually been misidentified as Martha Wayne before when I wore like a black 50s dress and pearls. I didn't uh, think about the pearls. It <laughs> was like, are you Martha Wayne? I'm like, no, but thank you. <laughs> or ouch, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, um, just noticing that. Well, I didn't know that about it. Of course... I'm going to mention this because I have to, but um, there's, okay, so there's a skit with Kate McKinnon, and I can't remember who plays Humphrey Bogart, but anyway, they do that last scene, but instead of her being so torn and not sure, she's more like trying to rip away from him and run onto the plane, Mm -hmm. and it's really funny because, you know, she's like, what's going to happen to me? Oh, and then (laughs) he keeps like having this long monologue with her, and she's like, is that the plane there? I, I can see it. Should I go? And he's like, and he keeps just like talking to her and she's like, well, I got to get my little feet running and, and I got to go on that plane and I, I better go now. And it's like really funny. But anyway, I'll send it to you. Uh, yeah. I, I want to talk one more thing about the ending and, and uh, goes back to that Woody Allen play. The movie version of play it again, Sam begins with Woody Allen's character watching the end of Casablanca. And your story about Saturday Night Live made me think of this. The end (laughs) of Play It Again, Sam, the movie version, recreates the ending, but instead of uh, Rick and Ilsa and uh, Victor Lazo, it's uh, Woody Allen's character, Diane uh, Keaton's character, and Tony Roberts' character. But it's uh, a shot-for-shot recreation. Ah, okay. Uh, the ending, so that's fine. Now, the original play, the one that uh, I was involved with, uh, uh, actually, the ending is more like the end of the Maltese Falcon, and uh, mm. so uh, I think the uh, the movie ending is a great improvement because of, I mean, even to the point of the airplane propeller starting when it starts, and all of it. Uh, ah, okay. Yes. Anyway, so uh, yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Um, so I guess this brings me to my last couple of questions for you then. Uh, number one, why do you think, I know everyone has seen this movie a million times cause it's awesome, but why do you, if you could sum it up, why do you think you've seen this film so many times? Even though I know every line of dialogue and I, uh, have, as I said, tried to imitate it myself and have seen it a gazillion times, watched it, yesterday to get ready for this it was on tv just on turner uh, just a couple of weeks ago uh, i get lost in it every time when he walks when bogey walks in and sees ilsa and he it's like he gets hit in the stomach i i feel that 
when you see the 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 ink on the letter that she goodbye letter that she writes to Rick at, at, that he reads on the uh, at the train station in Paris. Uh, yes, it's supposed to be rain, but at the same time, it's, it's tears making those uh, things run. Uh, when uh, he helps the Bulgarian girl and her husband, you know, it's like, oh, mm -hmm. such a wonderful thing. And then you get a laugh right after that where uh, uh, the Russian bartender comes around the bar and kisses Rick on both cheeks. Uh, <laughs> uh I, the, the one thing I do wish, I wish that uh, uh, Peter Laurie's character had, was in it a little more. Uh, it it totally served his function to bring in the MacGuffin and, and get the ball rolling. Uh, but uh, he's just such a fun actor to watch. I wish we had seen more of him. But uh, but yeah, I just get lost in it every time. And, uh, and uh, being a person that you know uh has lost love before i when i was in high school i got kicked to the curb more times than pepe Le Pew. but uh uh losing somebody i i have gone through a divorce in my life and those feelings of, of losing somebody uh, like that uh, uh i can identify with that and uh, uh but then the the nobleness, even though Rick says, I have no clue about how to be noble. He's making the ultimate noble sacrifice. And uh, uh, so, yeah, I just get swept away in it. And and I can, you know, I can watch it to watch technique. Uh, I can watch it to just get lost in the story. Uh, all of it, the music, the way you hear as time goes by, uh, intertwined in with these minor keys the, the, the song itself is a lovely song but then when bad things happen you'll hear a few notes of as time goes by played in a minor key or uh, uh, things like uh, that to help and and the lighting you said about uh, film noir uh, especially the scene uh, after uh, uh, Ilsa enters the cafe for the first time when Rick's drinking alone and it leads into the uh, uh, Paris flashback is very dark, very mm -hmm. noir like, uh, and uh, uh, a scene earlier on where Dooley Wilson is uh, entertaining the the club patrons. The whole place is dark except there's a shaft of light right on him. And his piano is a light color, and he's wearing a light colored suit. It's like he's he's radiant. Uh, yes. You know, and that stuff don't happen by accident. It's it's very well crafted, and that's what Curtis mm -hmm. was uh, uh, a master at uh, taking what he's given and taking it off the page and putting it on the film. Uh, while uh, uh, other people may have had more creative visions, he was a very good technician and mm -hmm. captured all these things. Uh, so. Uh, it's again is a near perfect movie uh, and again i can i can get lost in the story or i can watch it technically or you know just uh just so many ways to watch this film and enjoy it and, and you know you can watch it for a historical document of where uh 
uh, Europe and the United States and Germany were at that, and France uh, were at that time. Uh, mm-hmm. I did not know what the Vichy government was till after I saw this film and started doing a little bit of research. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of, um, if you go back through, like, you know, people have been upset in some of, I I don't think Parasite had quite this backlash, but like, let's say when the Green Book came out, um, there was a lot of backlash towards some best picture winners. And um, I remember Tim and Palmer pointing out to me, because they have a show called Academy Rewind, they said that there's actually a lot of best picture winners that in uh, retrospect were not the best pictures of that year. And in some years it's really obvious. Well, in, you know, 1942, the best picture made perfect sense because it truly is best picture material. Right. I mean, I think it's one of the films that, that it's, it, it got its due and has continued historically to, um, be at the top of lists for being, like you said, a near perfect film. Um, so, and it was totally I don't know. Go ahead. By luck, because mm. it was just one of. Uh, I think I heard uh, somebody say that the Warner's was was a movie making factory, and yeah, that's a, true. About a hundred or uh, a picture a week, so fifty pictures a year. And this was just one of those 50 pictures. And, mm-hmm. and we didn't even get into the uh, uh, complicated script writing process. Uh, a lot of the back half of the movie uh, was literally being written the night before they shot it. And wow. Including that wonderful ending. Uh, I mean, they, of course, they had the original play to go by, but uh, uh, the relationships of the characters were far different and everybody comes to Rick's and they are in Casablanca. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but yeah, they had no clue at the time that they were making something special. Uh, every, you know, body was either under contract to Warner's or loaned like Ingrid Bergman loaned to Warner's and they swapped her for, uh, Olivia de Havilland. It was just their job. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, few weeks later bogey's working on another gangster pick or something and uh, uh so they had no idea at the time and again uh ingrid bergman one of the reasons her performances her performance is so wonderful is that she never uh, didn't know till close to the end which of the two gentlemen she was going to wind up with at the end ah interesting and uh so that's why she's kind of seems conflicted in her feelings so much is because she honestly didn't know. Uh, it also gives her the appearance of being like kind of guarded and like, we don't know what she's thinking a little bit mm-hmm. too, mm-hmm. you know, she's conflicted, but also we don't know which way she's leaning. And that makes sense if she didn't know, Right. <laughs> but um, yeah. And, and so how would you, you know, you mentioned earlier that uh, Ebert uh, expressed that, you know, this is a movie that sort of transcends generations. So if you were to pitch this to a younger generation, what, what would you say to them that did you think would be like a good hook for them to see the movie? Oh, wow. <laughs> if you want to see where George Lucas got the idea for the cantina scene, here you go. <laughs> there you go. That's a good one. Uh, <laughs> I can't be mad at that. Well, I think also, you know, there, there's like a top, I don't know, hundred list of movies you should see before you die kind right. of thing um, that everyone should have on their, on their list uh, of, of great films. 
And, um, you know, Casablanca is at the pretty close to the top of that list. Yeah, so I've heard it. You have to see like it. number yeah. two is like Citizen Kane and Casablanca than everybody yeah. else. Have to agree. Um, and it's just it's just got a little bit of everything. Um, and, and yet it's it's daring and kind of exciting. And, and I felt like the film took some risks, you know, with the sort of morality, uh, especially of the time, the the relationships between people, but then also strong commentary on how Warner Brothers or Warner uh, Studios felt about Nazis. Oh, <laughs> and then yeah. just, you know, just a fun action, drama, romance. I mean, everything. So definitely a movie you have to watch. Um, and and I assure you. So quickly. Oh, it moves yes, so quickly. It does, I, which is, yeah, a pacing you know, a lot of people complain about, and I always talk about on here, pacing when it comes to older movies. This movie does not have a pacing problem. No, it doesn't. <laughs> I'm trying to see what the the runtime is here. I think it's like an hour and 40 minutes. Yeah. it's Yeah. So, yeah, there's another thing. It's a quick watch. <laughs> it is. Uh, and, yeah, the only reason I think that it always gets a two-hour slot on Turner is because you always have Ben Mankiewicz or somebody talking for 15 minutes before oh, for 15 sure. minutes after. Yeah, I think even when you see it in the theater, it's like they want to take out some time to tell you stuff. But, you know, there's a lot of great Humphrey Bogart movies, too, that you could watch, but I think this is probably the best. I mean, you have to see this one in Maltese Falcon, obviously. Right. And I recommend a lot more than that, but, I mean, this is kind of at the top of those films, and it's just a great movie, and... I, I assure you, once you watch it one time, you're going to end up seeing it again and again and again. It's just such a joy to watch. Yes, the Maltese Falcon made Bogey a leading man, and this movie made him an A-list star. And, mm, oh, and that's yeah, something else that we sense. didn't talk about. The original press release for this movie said that Ronald Reagan and Ann Sheridan were going to be the leads in this. But, oh, wow. But... Uh, what I've uh, heard. Well, I'm glad it wasn't Reagan. I mean, that's just, I mean, well, I like it being Humphrey because he looks more like an every man kind yes. of guy. And uh, <laughs> yeah, well, Reagan had, was already getting ready to go actually be in the service. And so uh, mm. uh, that was just a plant by the studio to get, keep his name out there. And, oh, uh, okay. And at one point it was uh, supposed to be George Raft and Betty Davis, who was like their first team as far as uh, couples went. Uh, mm. Interestingly enough, Paul Heinrich had just finished with Betty Davis, now Voyager, right before he went into this one. In fact, he was very reluctant to be in this one because he was not the main lead in it. Mm. And, and uh, that's why if you, I'm looking at the poster here, you see all three of their names across the top. Uh, he had to have equal billing with uh, Bogart and Bergman. I see. Okay. Interesting. But, uh, but yeah, this was just a job to these people. And uh, I don't know how many films Bogey made that year, but uh, uh, probably at least five, I would guess. And uh, this was just one of those. And a year or two later, he made To Have and Have Not, where he met Lauren Bacall, and we all know how that turned out. So, uh started one of the great love affairs, love stories, Hollywood love stories of all time. Mm. Uh, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's a, a near perfect movie. And, yes. Oh, uh, I'm, I'm seeing the 
link to the trailer here. There's a line in the trailer that's not in the movie just before. Oh, interesting. Just before uh, Bogey does what he does to Strasser near the end to keep Strasser from being able to stop the uh, the plane from taking off. Uh, he's, he's He says a line. Oh, that's another Star Wars connection. Strasser, oh. Strasser shoots first. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Uh, but he says, "All right, all right, Major. I warned you. Kablam!" Uh, and uh, and it's different because in the movie uh, he he doesn't say a line there. Uh, Strasser mm. pulls out his Luger, and uh, they fire almost instantaneously. But if you if you watch it very closely, Strasser shoots first. How he, how he missed, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> movie magic. Yes. Um. Oh, that's so cool. Well. Uh, John, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come back on here and talk about such a great movie with me. Uh, obviously, I can't wait to have you back. Oh, well, thank you for having me on, and I'm glad I was able to be here. <laughs> <laughs>